And turn with me to um, Philippians chapter 1, working our way through the Paul's letter to the Philippians in our afternoon service. Uh, we come to the second part of verse 18, and I'll read from verse 18 through the end of the chapter, although we'll focus on verses 18 to 26 in the sermon this afternoon. You pray with me as we read, before we read together. Holy Spirit, be gracious to us and illuminate our understanding. I pray that you would show us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would open your word to us, we pray. Give me the words to speak well of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. So Philippians 1, verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for, on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. For your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let the man manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or an ab am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, and but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. We thank the Lord that he's spoken to us in the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Last Lord's Day afternoon, we looked at verses 12 to 18 where Paul, the Apostle Paul, was reflecting on the reality of his own personal situation. He had been suffering. He had been suffering most acutely. He's under arrest. He's in prison in Rome. We know that Paul is chained to a Praetorian guard. And as we read, he's unsure. He does not know. If this own suffering that he's going through at this moment will not end in his own martyrdom. That's a distinct possibility that the Apostle is anticipating. So he was modelling in verses 12 to 18 for the Philippians how to endure suffering, clinging on, holding fast to Jesus Christ. And as he did so, verse 18 tells us, his own endurance and faithfulness to the Saviour emboldened others who preached Christ. And that Christ would be made much of 
that Christ's name was being proclaimed far and wide, and whether in pretense or in truth, that made Paul rejoice. So Paul is languishing in chains, yet he's overflowing in joy because his saviour is being made much of and his fame is being heralded all over the place. His witness permeated the Praetorian Guard. And as chapter 4, verse 22 makes clear, his witness penetrated into the household of Caesar itself. So Paul is in jail. He's rejoicing in the middle of suffering. And the second half of verse 18 says not only is he rejoicing in what is happening at that moment, but he's supremely confident that there is joy yet to come. He says, I will rejoice. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. And as as many of us have discovered from our own experience, when suffering comes and it robs us of joy in the here and now, but not, not, not only joy here and now, it blots out our horizons. And all we see in the future is darkness, shadow. And it obscures the hope of future joy. So our question ought to be, how is Paul able to proclaim with such confidence in the midst of such acute suffering that not only does he rejoice, but that he will rejoice? that there is still more joy to come. Where does Paul get the assurance, not only of present joy, but of future joy? Where does Paul get his extraordinary confidence from? Or perhaps to put it more pointedly, where can we find such confidence in future joy when our own trials overwhelm us and blot out, as it were, our hopes for the future? This is a passage that rings with extraordinary confidence. This passage tells us of Paul's extraordinary confidence. Verse 18, I will rejoice. Verse 19, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And verse 20, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. So the passage rings with assurance. It rings with not human confidence, but gospel confidence. So we need to find out, do we not, what is, the, what is the cause of Paul's joy? What is the cause of his gospel confidence and his assurance? Not only as an academic exercise, but as a pressing concern for the good of our own souls when we face trials of many kinds. Where do you get this gospel confidence from? I want you to see three things in particular that I believe would help us answer and is Paul's answer in verse 18 to 26 to that question. This is the ground and the root of Paul's assurance of future joy. So I want you to notice with me the the solid grounds on which his confidence rests. The grounds of Christian confidence, of Christian hope. So it's the surprising 
logic of his Christ-centred calculation that stands at the centre of this passage. So first of all, the grounds on which his confidence rests, the logic of his Christ-centred calculation, and finally, the sacrificial character of commitment. So first of all, the solid ground of Christian confidence. Paul's confidence is not wish-fulfillment. It's not naive hope, despite all the evidence. His confidence is founded primarily on three things. First of all, the certainty. The certainty, the absolute certainty of future deliverance. And as Christians, that is where our Christian confidence rests, on the absolute, without question, certainty of future deliverance. In the first place, Paul's confidence rests on the certainty of future deliverance. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And in verse 20, it is my eager expectation and hope I will not be at all ashamed. Now, we might easily read those words as meaning, well, Paul believes he'll be released, because that's how we naturally think, that Paul thinks he'll be released that he won't face the shame of a condemning sentence at the hands of the Roman judicial system, that he won't look bad in front of the Romans. But he has no confidence at all in that. He's not sure he will escape martyrdom. So what does he mean when he says, this will turn out for my deliverance? This is Christian confidence. It is my persuasion that... Christian deliverance is eternal. It is my persuasion that what he's talking about is spiritual and eternal. It is spiritual in nature, not deliverance from the present trials, but ultimate deliverance. My father used to preach in the street and he used to say every time, my friend, you have a never dying soul, you will spend eternity somewhere. And that's the truth that we all have to face up to. We have a never-dying soul, we will spend eternity somewhere. The Christian has an eternal hope. The ultimate hope of deliverance. So Paul is saying that my chains, my sufferings, by God's perfect ordination, will become, in the hands of my Redeemer, instruments that will, in the end, produce deliverance from me. Ultimate final and glorious. Unless we have the hope of heaven, we have no hope at all. Our hope is not that things will get better for us. Our hope is not that the government will change. Our hope is nothing temporal. Our hope is spiritual. Our hope is eternal. And our hope is in ultimate deliverance. Now, that's vitally important for us if we're to handle the reality of personal trials when they come. Because Paul is telling us that our sufferings, rather than railing against them, they're instruments in the hands of God to bring us home to glory in the end. And to work in us perseverance and endurance, to deepen our dependence on the Saviour, to become in the hands of Jesus the Master Physician, a clean knife to cut away the cancer of our sin. He will use our trials. 
Paul does not say despite his suffering he'll be delivered. He says his suffering will result in deliverance. They're instrumental in fitting him for glory. Um, you know, he's been fitted, like I know a friend of mine went this, this, this week to get a suit to be fitted for a wedding. You know, we're being fitted for deliverance. And it's instrumental in fitting us for glory. Grasping that changes our perspective and helps us handle our sufferings when they come. It helps us understand that they've been ordained for us. They can be blessed to me. They can be sanctified to me by the Saviour to fit me for heaven. To equip me for dependence on him. To work in me perseverance and endurance that will weather the storm to the glory of the Saviour and his great name. And that's what's happening in Paul's life. What Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, as you face trials of many kinds, always keep eternity in view. That's clear from Philippians 1. Whatever your trials, keep eternity in view. Understand that the Saviour is preparing you, is fitting you for glory. So the certainty of future deliverance. But notice also the centrality, secondly, this is secondly in point one, I think, the centrality of Paul, of, for Paul of the prayer of the God's people. There are two great instruments that will result in Paul's deliverance. One immediate in his own circumstance, the reality of personal trial, one more distant to do with the life of the church. That is to say that as the people of God pray for him, that he's enabled by the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ in response to their prayers, he's enabled to persevere through the trial. And his trials are blessed to him as the spirit is given in answer to the prayers of the church. A stronger statement of the instrumental role that the prayer life of the local church plays in gathering and equipping the people of God here and perseverance to the end, I do not think it's possible to find in Holy Scripture. Paul is saying this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers. As people, God's people pray, great things happen in the life of Paul. As God's people pray, great things happen in the life of Paul. The point to note is that even Paul's personal growth, his sanctification, does not take place in isolation from the church. It is a sobering thought that our spiritual relationship with God is not an individualistic concern. No, we're dependent on the Spirit's power in answer to the intercession of the people of God. Do you long for more of the power and the dynamic of the spirit of Jesus Christ in your Christian life, in our life together as a church. And Paul says, well, pray. Do you long for help? Do you long for resources to persevere? Paul says, get praying. That's what Paul says the Philippians are doing for him. They are praying. The church is gathering to pray. And as they pray, the spirit has been given and Paul's trials are blessed to him for his deliverance. 
I think Paul would say that attendance at the prayer meeting is a good barometer of the love of the members of the local church for one another. And yet our church is not alone in the fact that most churches, if you ask, I've asked most ministers, the least attended meeting in the week is the prayer meeting. But it's, it's, it's an index of the spiritual temperature of a congregation, its attitude to the prayer meeting. So when you come, do you come pleading with heaven for the outpouring of the Spirit, for the growth of the church, but the perseverance of the saints? That's what Paul says the Philippians did for him. They prayed for his perseverance. And as they did, he's confident that things will turn out for his deliverance. So the certainty of future deliverance, the power of prayer, and the third part of his Point one, confidence in the face of suffering is simply Christ's exaltation. Paul's confidence isn't based on himself and what will happen to his life, but what will happen to the name and honour of the Lord Jesus. Verse 20 is my eager expectation and hope. I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death, whether I live or die. I know that Jesus will be made much of. Jesus will be made much of. He'll be magnified is a way to translate what Paul says. We use, I've said this before, but it's interesting to think about. If you think about the two instruments that we use to magnify things. One is a microscope. I've used this one before. And a microscope makes small things look bigger than they are. But that's not what Paul says when he says we magnify Jesus. We don't take a microscope to magnify Jesus. What Paul is saying is that his whole life, his ambition is committed to being a telescope, not a microscope, uh, not a microscope, a telescope. Because a telescope, if you think about it, makes huge things that are from our vantage point very small because of our perspective and relationship to it, Paul says, I love to show you Jesus in his true dimensions. And that's what a telescope does. It makes something that is large but distant appear, that appears small, it shows us in more truer dimensions. That's what it means to make much of Jesus. That's what it means to magnify Jesus. And Paul says, I live for nothing so much as to make Christ known, to magnify him, to show him as he really is in his glory, his beauty, his excellency and worth. So first of all, the confidence, the Christian confidence. Secondly, this logic of Christ-centred calculation. His deepest longings not fixed on himself, but on the honour and the fame of Christ being spread. So that's why he says, I'll rejoice whatever happens to me. Even if I die, I will rejoice, because whether by my life or my death, Jesus will be magnified. So this is an incredible thing. There's an incredible piece of sacred calculus here. For me to live as Christ and to die again. Famous words, for me to live is Christ to die gain. I wonder whether that, that's Paul's epitaph on his tombstone. 
For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. They sum up, perhaps better than any other verse of scripture, the heartbeat of Paul. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Jesus was all to Paul. Jesus is all in all to me, Paul says. Whether I live or die, it's Christ that I want and all that I need is him. For me to live is Christ. There are no verbs in the Greek. I'm not that good at Greek, but there are no verbs. And it's almost as though the Apostle Paul is struggling to string a sentence together as he tries to convey what Jesus means to him. And I'm not surprised because it's clear how much Jesus meant to Paul. Just have to read his letters. But two simple clauses, literally, for to me the life Christ and the death gain. For me the life Christ and the death gain. To me, this is the calculus of the door. This is the equation. Life equals Christ. Death equals gain. Jesus is all satisfying to me. He is all satisfying to me. So death is gain. Martin Lloyd-Jones elaborated and paraphrased this first clause of Paul's statement for me to live as Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, there are certain demands I make of life. There are certain things I'm looking for. I'm looking for peace and joy. I'm looking for happiness and Christ completely satisfies me in every respect. I have an intellect. Christ satisfies it, says Paul. I have feelings and desires which need satisfaction. Well, Christ is my all in all. Every demand I make of life is more than fully satisfied in Christ. That is what Paul means. The reaction of things that happen and all the demands of Paul's nature and his personality are fully satisfied and realised. Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, My dear friends, can you say the same thing? Quoting Lloyd-Jones, he said, I'm sorely tempted to stop at this point and ask you that question over and over. Are you fully satisfied with Christ? This to me is the very essence of the Christian position. The thing that makes a Christian a Christian is Christ. Christ is central. He is everything to me. Living to Paul meant Christ. For me to live is Christ. And then he goes on to say, death and death is gain, which is the Christian position on death. That's simple. But many of us, I think, wrongly about death. Because for Paul, death is gain. Death is gain for Paul. The Westminster Shorter Catechism sums up beautifully Paul's point of view. Question 37, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? Answer, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness. What happens to believer at death? The soul of a believer at death is immediately made perfect and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in the grave until the resurrection. 
And their bodies will one day be made perfect too. And raised imperishable and reunited with their souls to dwell in the new heavens and the new earth at the last day. And until that day, until that day, Paul says, death is gain. Because the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory face to face with Jesus. Face to face with Jesus. So, Christian believer, when you close your eyes in the sleep of death, you open them immediately on the face of the Saviour who died for you. That's Christian hope. That is death is gain. When you close your eyes in the sleep of death, you open them immediately on the face of your Redeemer. What did, what did Jesus say? Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Death is gain. Death is gain for the Christian. Death is gain. Because you have uninterrupted communion with the Christ who in life is all satisfying and supremely valuable. So if he's all, if he's all in all in life to you, in death there is nothing to interrupt the sweetness of communion and fellowship with him. No sin to come between you and your Redeemer forever with the Lord which is far better. So death is gain. Secondly, Christ is all. Part of this calculus. Is Christ all in all? Is Christ, is life to you, Christ? Is he enough? Or do you have to have something, if you think about this morning, about the idols, or do you have to have something else? Where do you go when you most need something? Do you have to have Jesus, but I have to have this, I have to have that, I have to have that, I will not be satisfied if I don't have that, whether it be a, a phone, or an iPad, or a computer, or a car, or a job, whatever it may be, if it's Jesus, but I must have that, well then it's an idol. It's a competitor in your heart for where Christ must reign alone. He will brook no rivals, we saw this morning. Nor should you turn to any other, for every other is a broken cistern. It will always leave you hungry and thirsty in the end. Only Jesus supplies living water welling up into life everlasting to all who come to him and drink. Many have been drinking at broken cisterns their whole lives running after the counterfeit satisfactions of the world, and yet they kind of glut your appetite for a season, but they always leave you hungry and thirsty in the end. I've never really come across anyone who said that money has made them happy. The more they have, the more they want. And then they're worried about keeping it. You are made for satisfaction, and your satisfaction can only be found in Jesus Christ. You need Jesus. Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I've told the story before um, from this passage, and it's a tremendous story of Hugh McHale. And Hugh McHale was a covenanter, and he was martyred in Edinburgh. 
for his commitment to the Reformation. And he articulates this very ideal, this commitment and attitude and conviction that we find in Paul, Hugh McHale. And he was in, to be martyred in Edinburgh, and they, he sang Psalm 31, and he climbed the scaffold. And he said, I care no more to go up this ladder and over it than if I were going home to my father's house. And every step he took, he cried out, every step is a degree nearer heaven. And after he read from God's words and he preached, he's about to, he's about to die and he preached. The noose was placed around his neck and he says, now I leave off to speak no more to creatures and turn my speech to thee, O Lord. He's preaching. He's about to die. He says, now I begin my intercourse with God, which shall never be broken. Farewell, father and mother, friends and relations. Farewell, world and all its delights. Farewell, meat and drink. Farewell, sun, moon and stars. Welcome, God and Father. Welcome, sweet Lord Jesus, mediator of the new covenant. Welcome, Spirit of grace, God of all consolation. Welcome, glory. Welcome, eternal life. Welcome, death. Welcome, death, to die is gain. Oh, for a faith like that. Oh, for a heart like that. As bold as a lion. You see, we can face the worst if Christ is enough. If Christ is enough, we can face the worst. We can face the worst if Christ is enough. If you live saying, for me to live is Christ, you will die saying death is gain. And thirdly and finally, the sacrificial character of commitment. Notice the sacrificial character of Paul's commitment. We've seen the grounds of his confidence. We've seen the logic of his Christ-centred calculation. And finally, the sacrificial character of his commitment. He speaks in the remainder of his, our passage as though the choice was up to him. Shall I stay or shall I go? Um, shall I stay or go to be with my saviour? I want to be with Jesus, which is better, but I'm torn between the two. Shall I... Shall I stay or shall I go and be with my saviour? Was that a Rick Astley song? I hope not. Um, but as though he's speaking, as though he had the choice entirely on his own. And he was really doing that to show us where his heart really was. He doesn't know if he's going to be martyred or not, released or not. But if it were up to him, he says, this is what I would choose. Though being with Christ is better, I want the best for you. I love what my Saviour loves and he loves the church and I love the church. I love you Philippians and I long that you might taste more and more that the Lord is good. So he says, verse 22, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me. Verse 25 and 26, I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. He wants to be the means of capturing and captivating their hearts with delight in Jesus. 
so he's committed to enduring for their sake. If the choice was his, he would suffer that he might make a difference for God's people. You know when Jesus is all in all, when your deepest longing and your highest ambition is his glory rather than your own. And you'll endure anything that his fame would spread and his honour proclaimed. And nothing, absolutely nothing, will fire your joy as much as seeing the people of God rejoicing and resting in Christ with you. A joy shared is a joy doubled. So Paul is able to say, I will rejoice whether I live or die. And if I have opportunity to stay, then I will pour myself out, no matter the trials, that my joy might be doubled by being accompanied by yours, as together we glory in Christ. May the Lord give us all hearts that echo the pattern, the example of the Apostle Paul, so that for us, for us, we really may live. Christ is all. Christ is all in all. Would you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, we do give thanks for the Lord Jesus, who is infinitely satisfying. Forgive us for running so often to idols, for seeking satisfaction in this world. Help us to run to the fountain of living water and to draw with joy from the well of salvation that never runs dry, that we might drink from the wellspring that is Jesus. We ask it for his sake. Amen.